Welcome everybody to this Life Beyond Wellington session. I'm Murray Lindo, I'm head of the Wellington community. And as you would have read, tonight's topic is how to survive and thrive in the workplace through great working relationships. And we're delighted and thrilled that Natasha Christie Miller, Wellington parent and president, CEO of Essential Intelligence, has very kindly agreed to, to lead tonight's session. So until last year or so, you used to hear a fairly common phrase, didn't we, which was that, um, or truism, that you're probably going to spend more of your life with the people you work with than with your own family. Uh, and even though in recent times we've been working from home and um, doing most of that on screen, I'm sure that still holds true. Um, so the big question is, how do you make those relationships at work, uh, make sure they're happy, healthy and productive? And, and I'm delighted that Natasha is going to help us navigate our way through this topic. Uh, Natasha, thank you for agreeing to do tonight's session. We're extremely grateful to you. Um, and as we said in the blurb, the plan is for tonight, you're going to share with us your thoughts and observations on key aspects of working relationships. So how to influence others, how to get ideas across, how to get the best out of people and how not to be made to feel awful by others, which I think is quite a quite important aspect as well as looking at uh, why we behave in certain ways in particular circumstances and sort of how to catch ourselves and understand others so that we have more choices about how we react and then behave. But we're also hoping you're going to share with us some of your own fascinating career path along the way. So that is more than enough from me, as I can see people nodding. Um, so over to you, Natasha, and thanks again for tonight's session. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Murray. And it's very lovely to be here. Um, I've... Uh, uh, I'm very happy to talk about Essential as a business and, and my career. Perhaps we could do that either in the Q&A or, or at another time if anybody's interested. Um, I've been working for nearly 30 years. Uh, I've managed teams for most of that time. Um, I've run a number of businesses and I mentor a, a wide range of individuals. And in my experience, the... The proportion of time that we spend talking about the technical aspect of the job, so whether they're a lawyer or journalist or in sales, um, reduces markedly over time. And actually, it gets exchanged for the challenges, problems, machinations of the different interpersonal relationships within a professional environment whether that's customers, whether it's bosses, teams that work for you, peers, or any other groups that, that people need to interact with. And the sort of things that uh, we spend our time and energy on really center around, I can't get this team or this person to do what I want, or this person doesn't listen to me, or I'm really struggling to get this particular idea across. What am I doing wrong? And I think that... Uh, I, I hold very true to me that it is um, incredibly important that each individual comes to work um, as their best self and able to be full of beans, if that's how they like to be, um, curious, ready to learn and ready to do a terrific job and join in. And there are certainly times, um, oh, sorry, actually, and it's really important that I think I hold very true that not only do we do that for ourselves, but that we help create an environment for others where they can be their best selves and they can come full of beans and they can come uh, happy to share and bring forward their ideas. 
And it's not always the case because humans have an enormous ability of impacting how other humans feel. And we often don't realize what it is that we're doing or who we are that has, th that has these big impacts. So what I want to explore are, is that kind of nebulous, intangible area, which we don't really understand, um, or hopefully after this talk, we will understand better uh, the impact that we have on others and the impact that others have on us. So I'm sure uh, you could all think back to a time when you walk into a room, whether it's two people, 10 people, 50 people, and you feel good, you feel on form, you feel confident, you feel like you can engage in whatever activity is going on, uh, you feel like you can contribute, uh, and you feel, you feel strong, you feel at ease. But I think uh, probably most of you will also remember a time or can think of a time where the opposite has been true, where you've walked into a room and you haven't felt at ease. And perhaps you've felt a bit shy or you've um, not rushed in to join in whatever activity or conversation is going on. And um, it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling because you're not feeling in flow, you're not feeling your best self. And it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's obvious why you would be like that. If you walked in and it was the queen standing there, you'd probably feel like that. But sometimes it's not always obvious why you are feeling like that. And that's what I'm going to explore in the next sort of five minutes um, is a, a structure and a, a theory around how rank impacts people's behavior. Now, rank is a word that most of us have obviously heard of, um, and we often hear it in the context of the armed forces or police and things like that, and it's a very hierarchical concept. But take it away from those very fixed uh, thoughts, you know, for a very fixed use, um, like in the army. And what rank is, is really a comparison in the power dynamic between, let's say, two individuals. So at any one moment, one person in an interaction has more power than the other person. And then the converse is true, that one person has less power, less lower rank than the other person. Think of, um, think of that in, the, in, in a workplace and potentially for the students who uh, haven't worked maybe in a, a classroom situation or a tutorial. But if, um, and I'll, I'll use me as an example, I'm a 49 year old uh, white British woman with a fancy job title. So in the workplace, um, I'm often the most senior person in the room. Um, there are, let's say five or six people with me and I feel comfortable, I feel confident, and I will behave in a certain way, unconsciously usually, when you're in that position of higher rank. So I'm gonna be feeling quite confident, I'll be at ease, I'm probably sitting back in my chair, I'm feeling quite relaxed, I'm usually articulate, I'm able to put my point across, I feel comfortable saying something provocative, um, uh, something out of the ordinary, um, I'm often very happy to speak first or even last, uh, and I'm potentially not thinking that hard about what I'm talking about because it's fine, I'll get away with it. When these, these behaviors get exaggerated um, and at their worst, then what I'm describing really is, is somebody uh, who, with a sense of entitlement. 
Um, you can become dismissive of other people's feelings. Uh, and you're, there's a level of kind of detachment to, to what's going on. That's at its worst, right? Higher rank individuals, obviously, not obviously, sorry, but can have a very important and impactful um, and positive uh, in, uh, influence on a group. But at its worst, there are some really problematic and negative behaviours. So then think about being an individual or a group of people in a kind of lower rank position. And again, if we're thinking about a work environment, there's usually a very obvious ranking because somebody's got a fancier job title than somebody else. But if you're in that lower rank position, then you'll often, you'll often settle uh, for things. You potentially are feeling shy and reticent about putting something um, uh, controversial or, or out of the ordinary onto the table. You've probably rehearsed what you want to say beforehand. You've really thought about it because you don't want to look stupid or you don't want to put a foot wrong in front of these higher ranking individuals. You potentially, again, when these get a bit exaggerated, these behaviours, you may start complimenting other people and placating other people. You're wanting them to feel strong and, and, and good about themselves. And actually, at its real worst, you can become, you can, you can doubt yourself uh, and you can, this can turn into a sort of bitterness and there can be a, a revengeful side to it. If you feel powerless, if you don't feel like you're able to contribute in the way that you would like to contribute. I'm going to just do a quick sidebar on a personal story. And I hope this really il illustrates it. Slightly provocative, but I'm sure you can all cope with it. It was my brother's um, 50th uh, no, it wasn't his 50th, let's say 48th birthday party. There were six of us at a swanky restaurant, three couples, all happened to be white, heterosexual in our late 40s. And I was sitting next to not my husband, Rod, who's here, and not my brother, but another chap. Let's call him Tom. That's not his name, but he doesn't cover himself in glory in this story. And we were having a chat and I was sharing with him um, my observations and my knowledge and what I've seen and, and heard through work and through meeting lots of young people uh, around gender fluidity and, uh, and um, uh, fluidity around sexuality amongst younger people. And this chap, Tom, um, was looking at me in a really weird way, like, well, you've probably got that wrong, love, haven't you? That sounds a bit weird. Not really buying that. And um, I was getting increasingly sort of irritated by this. So I was giving him more and more examples. And we sort of paused for a moment. And my very lovely husband heard the conversation. And my husband is a white 50-year-old lawyer. And he turned to Tom and he said, no, she's right. I've seen it myself. And his manner totally changed. Oh, oh, right. OK. And he accepted it in the way that he would accept that bit of information from somebody that he considered either of equal or even sort of higher rank than him, but he wouldn't accept it from somebody that he considered lower rank. Now, if I asked him, he would think that I was talking absolute bananas and he would say to me, of course not. Uh, it, it, he would be very unaware of his own behavior, but it is, uh, it, it is behavior that gets repeated again and again and again. And if you are in a group um, which isn't a white, middle-class, uh, educated man, then this happens frequently. Um, and it's incredibly important, in my opinion, that the more people who understand that these dynamics happen, the more that we understand them, 
uh, the more that we can actually address them and adapt our behaviours to help everybody, including those in the high rank positions, uh, be their best selves and get the best out of their teams. So rank can be really problematic. And in Britain, it is particularly problematic and in most of the Western world, because we assign rank to a number of societal factors that an individual has absolutely no impact on. The, um, there's a great professor, and his name's gone out of my head. I, if anyone wants to know it, I can find it in two seconds. But he created a framework to help us really understand rank um, because he wrote very strongly about that those in a position of higher rank have got, there are moments in their career where it is important to sort of, what do we call it, pull rank um, and to say, this is what we're doing and do it now and there's no debate. And we all know that there are situations where that is exactly the right thing to do. But nine times out of 10, it isn't. And organizations that are run by individuals that just bark orders constantly and abuse their position of power and abuse their position of uh, seniority, those businesses tend to fail in the long run. They tend to have unhappy employees or they have really homogenous ideas that just get repeated again and again and they don't evolve and they don't um, adapt to, to uh, factors uh, beyond their control. So this brilliant professor came up with a structure to help us understand rank. And there's four main characteristics um, uh, that go to make up how an individual gets ranked. And the good news in this is that whilst one of them is societal and it's things that an individual can't do to change it, and I'll come on to those in a second, there are two that are very much about learned behavior and things that individuals can draw on as their own superpowers uh, to give themselves um, power and to come from a place of power when they're interacting in a work environment. So let's just go through the four of them. The first is societal rank, and this is what you're born into. So um, it, the, the, in a Western world, we favor whiteness, we favor heterosexuality, we favor maleness, we favor being married into money, we favor being married into parents uh, that are educated. And that they're a problematic truth that over time is changing and improving, but there's a long way to go there. The second characteristic around rank is contextual rank. And this is um, in an obvious way, uh, the seniority of somebody um, in, in, a, uh, in a school, in any sort of institution, in a workplace, that if somebody has a fancier job title than somebody else, then they've got higher contextual rank. The third one, and this is one that individuals can learn, um, is called psychological rank. And this really, lots of us call this these days, emotional intelligence. So this is something where if you don't have the other two things, so you're coming from a position of uh, lower rank, then having high emotional intelligence is an incredible tool and an incredible, uh, useful um, uh, tool to grab onto and use and to be able to influence in the way uh, that you deserve to be able to influence. The fourth is spiritual rank. 
And this can come from religion. If people are very religious, then they're often very sure and sturdy and um, in their beliefs. But it also comes from a, a range of things. And it's about being able to see a kind of bigger picture. So often great strategists have got really high uh, spiritual rank. Often yoga teachers have great spiritual rank. They're not easily swayed. Um, they're individuals that have quite strong um, uh, inner, inner strength um, and, and, and are sort of anchored so that they can absorb pressure, deal with emotions quite easily and quite quickly. And that, that's replicated as well for psychological ranks. So they can observe emotions, they can absorb, process them. And look, I don't know this chap, but if you look at somebody like Boris Johnson, he clearly has very high societal rank. He has very high contextual rank. He's a prime minister. He's white. He's rich. He was born into money, et cetera, et cetera. But when pressured, it appears that he has really low psychological and really low spiritual rank. His behavior and his response to being overpressured appears out of, out of sync. It appears inappropriate. And he loses power in those situations. He loses the ability to influence others uh, if he starts to crumble when there's that sort of level of pressure around him. Like I said, I don't know him and I might be completely wrong. I'm just what, what I see in the paper and what I see on television. So I've described rank and I've described the different characteristics. I've described how I think uh, there are some real problems with it, of course, um, based on what we assign rank to uh, in individuals that can't do anything about it. But in terms of being aware of it and understanding it, it means that we as individuals can make real choices about how we want to behave and how we want to make others feel. And as a leader, my superpower really has come from being able to get the best out of others, to extract the best ideas and then run with those. If everybody was relying on me to come up with every idea for our business, you know, we would have, we would have fallen over a long time ago. So the ability to make others feel comfortable, to be able to bring their ideas forward and run with them is an incredibly important and helpful characteristic and tactic that I've used and, and built my career on. So I feel responsibility for my own self, for, for being the best that I can. And I really think about uh, the position that I hold and the rank that I hold in any situation um, in order to make sure that I don't exaggerate the negative uh, parts of, of, um, of, of being the highest ranking person in the room. And then the opposite, you know, I could be talking to shareholders or my bosses uh, and it's tricky and sticky and I have to catch myself and make sure that I'm not tripping into placating or complimenting or not putting forward, you know, difficult, uh, difficult suggestions. So it's an ongoing it's an ongoing learning for, for, for me and I imagine for everybody. But that level of awareness is something that I would love everybody to have because I think then it helps ourselves and others come to the table, whether it's in a professional or, or, or an educational environment, um, and bring their best self. That's what I was going to share, Murray. Thank you. Fascinating. And I think um, I was writing notes. And, of course, I've got one of my my members of my team on the call, and I think she was making notes similarly. 
Um, so, um, but it's a, it's a great introduction, Natasha, into kind of managing the interpersonal relationships in our working lives, which are crucial, absolutely crucial. Um, as you say, from the business is only going to thrive if the people are thriving, and and that awareness. So, I mean, I suppose. I suppose the question, my first question, and we've got, we actually have had lots of questions sent in and please do feel free to use the chat bar and all the rest of it and we will try and multitask. But I suppose you, that, that awareness of those four levels of, of rank are incredibly helpful. And so that creates an awareness. And once you're aware, you can almost never go back unless you're really daft. <laughs> but you then went on to say that by being aware, by catching yourself, you're able to get you know the best out of your staff. Now, perhaps I just wondered if, you can just talk us a little bit more about that, the, the, the techniques and tactics you use. So that awareness is critical. You're aware. And then it's then how do you then implement that awareness in, in that, that meeting, that meeting where you're discussing a, a new idea, a, pro a project? How do you manage that? Yeah. So I think that teams go wrong when there isn't a clear goal for what a team are trying to achieve that rolls up into what a company is trying to achieve or a product or whatever it is. And so I almost always will start most sessions, whether they're meetings or whatever they are, with a unrobotic and perhaps nuanced reminder of whatever it is that we're setting out to do, how that fits into the wider picture and why it's important. So that is to help everybody kick off and feel, okay, what we're doing really matters. So uh, perhaps I'll pay attention and stop dinging on my phone, whoever I'm talking to at the moment, by text. Um, then in terms of, just going back to what we were talking about in terms of awareness, I draw other people out um, at the right moments for them. So, we all know that people like to absorb information in different ways. And some people like to reflect. They like to hear lots of information, reflect on it, and then be able to sort of assimilate uh, an idea, uh, a question, an answer. Um, others like to think out loud, um, which is fun, slash irritating, slash brilliant, all those things. Um, but there, is, you know, there are those that like to think out loud. There are those that like to ask questions that help them get to an answer. So they'll bombard you with sort of 15, 20 questions. And having a, an awareness of other individuals' preferred ways of learning and processing information and ideation uh, means that I hope and, and often do get the best out of them by being able to make those adjustments. And, you know, a workplace is different to a school where you have fixed numbers and, you know, often large numbers of students and environment. I can really pick people off individually if that's the best way that they need to hear things. I can write to people as well as talk to them. I can listen as well as read. And it's using all of those different mechanisms, um, having evaluated or just having trying and testing with somebody until you get to a, a point where, you know, you're getting the best out of them. Brilliant. I mean, it's really interesting because I'm just thinking of the, the parallels as you've, as, you've, as you've helpfully made into the classroom. I mean, I think it's really interesting that, um, I mean, it, just after the earth cooled was when I did my uh, 
my teaching qualification, but it was all about differentiation. And, and actually, all great teachers know that they have a class of 20, 30 young people that they've got to work out what is their preferred learning style, all the things you described that then go on in the workplace. And, and I found that when I left teaching and then went into the workplace, I was, I was surprised and delighted by um, the, the world of psychometric evaluation. And, and I thought, God, if I'd only known that when I was teaching, that would have been really helpful. But, but uh, do, you, do you use psychometric testing? Do you do that kind of, I mean, I know Myers-Briggs is old hat, but I still love it. Um, do you use those things to help your team members become self-aware? Yeah, yeah, we do, definitely. I mean, it's not the only tool that we use, but we absolutely do. There's a particular one I like called the Thomas Profile, and it helps you understand whether somebody requires a lot of data to feel comfortable about something or whether somebody likes kind of visual creative pictures and stories told in order to absorb information. So it is incredibly helpful. And often when there are dysfunctional teams, which by the way happens the whole time, then one of the tactics that we use is that level of kind of self-awareness and awareness of others. So we get everyone's opinion and we do these processes, uh, we all pop out with whatever we are, and then we're able to compare, oh, you like it, but we do this, okay, I know that now, blah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. One of the, one of the things that the poor um, IB students had, had a session with me the other day, which uh, my daughter told me that she thought I was making up on the spot, which I said, no, this is 30 years of thought, which <laughs> if it comes across as being made up on the spot, that is disturbing. Um, but but one of the things, just thinking about that um, psychometric testing, and I and I think just thinking because the core theme of, of, of what you've, you've shared with us is that self-awareness. And um, one very basic tool was something I came across years ago, and I think that it is the basis of a lot of um, psychometric testing is the Jahari window, which does sound like a Star Wars sort of prequel or sequel. I mean, I'm so confused. I don't know where we are with prequels and sequels anyway. But the grid was, and it's something you can do very easily with your friends in a very kind, gentle way, is that, and I can't remember, it's basically what's known to you and what's known to others. So they would say, oh, yes, Natasha's like that. And you would say, yes, I am like that. And then there would be what's known to others, uh, known to you, but not known to others, your kind of private self that you kind of, that you don't want to share, but you know who you are, but you don't share it. So your, your, your colleagues might go, no, well, you know, that, that would be a surprise. And then there's the one that is um, now uh, uh, known to them, but, but not known to you. So they'll say, well, come on, Natasha or Murray, blimey, you know, you probably not, don't know this. And you go, oh, God, do I do that? Oh, God. And, and this is the sort of thing you want to do with friends. And then, of course, the last grid is the most exciting, which is not known to you and not known to others. Now, the way I see the Jahari window set out is basically says there may be there lie the demons or something. But, yeah. <laughs> but actually, it's, it's just thinking of our, well, at any age, to get your mates around the table and say, to do a very gentle Jahari window kind of keys into what you're saying in terms of their self-awareness. So you can manage yourself and, and, and understand, you know, all the other, other things around status. Now, I noticed that we've got a few questions coming in. Now, I don't know whether you want me to leap to those, but it's provoking, the, the session's provo provoking discussion. Um, um, so should we go and have a look at these questions as well as the other questions that have been sent on in advance? Yeah, definitely. Okay, now it's very interesting. Um, does... Do you find that Generation Z or Z are more aware of unconscious bias? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, and it's usually my favorite time spending time with Gen Z people. Um, yes, uh, I don't know how to expand on that apart from mm -hmm. it just gives me so much joy and hope to see uh, that unconscious bias being called out. I mean, my kids call me out constantly and it's great. It means I'm learning. Their job is to make me a better person. Um, uh, yeah, so the answer is yes. And it, it gives me great hope and it makes me think that those societal ranks and where we assign rank there will, uh, will dilute over time. And I, and I guess it, 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 that, that awareness that, you know, our young people, I mean, I now sound like 150 years old, but it, but, but because they are aware, because they've been talking about unconscious bias, then that that is really that is really exciting. You know, so again, it's a bit like you're saying with once you've understood rank in the workplace, you can never unlearn it. It's there. And you have that awareness, which means things instantly change. So um, so it's great that we've got a generation coming through that are thinking about this in a way that we probably never did. Uh, um, right. Here's another question. Um, do you think, Natasha, that women and men face different challenges in the workplace? And if so, how can that be reconciled, e.g. women not going for promotions? Yeah, look, I do think that men and women are judged very differently in the workplace. And um, I've had really big battles with pretty senior people on this topic, often women who um, just don't just don't buy it because they've succeeded so there's kind of two ways that I describe it, right? This, the structures that we have today and the bias that we have today, it's worked for me. I'm, you know, by any standards, reasonably successful. And I have been able to navigate the game, the rules. However, I am really conscious they're not my rules and they're not my game. I have learned what they are but I know that someone else set them and it's white middle-class men, upper middle-class men who have set them. And I'm lucky enough with the privilege that I was born with and with the skills that I've got and the curiosity that I developed, that, um, that I was able to work out what those rules were and to play to them. The really sad fact is that men are still, and I'm generalizing, of course, but if I say this happens more than it doesn't happen, then that just gives us some wiggle room because of course there are zillions of exceptions. But men are generally judged by others, men and women and people of all genders, on the stereotypical behaviors that we associate with men. So we judge a man on how um, assertive they are. We judge a man favorably, I should say. We judge a man favorably on their um, ability to direct. On women, we often judge and appreciate women who um, have a fragility, a sweetness, a kindness, a sharing, a giving. These are really unconscious. And I've had plenty of rows with lots of people who think I'm talking a load of old crap. But if we were to do a survey and everybody was to answer those questions, um, uh, and we were to observe every single piece of behavior, we would see that that uh, is the case. And it gets perpetuated in the media. You know, um, there's, 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 we understand that those typical characteristics get celebrated again and again. So I do think it's harder for women because still the, 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 um, the biggest group who are in the most positions of power, 
I'm not saying that they're the majority because there's lots of different people in power now, but the largest group of people in power are still white educated men. And so therefore the rules of the game haven't yet changed. They're adapting and they're softening, but they're still those same rules. Um, I've got a slightly provocative thing that I say often, and again, lots of people hate it when I say this, which is that I walk into lots of boardrooms where there are brilliant women, there are brilliant men, and there are loads of mediocre men. I never see mediocre women in boardrooms. So equality is when we walk in and we've got a bunch of very average women sitting around a boardroom table. That's when we know we've got equality. <laughs> That's, that is the, one of the most interesting KPIs I've ever, ever seen around gender equality. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, I just yeah. want equality and everyone's brilliant. <laughs> well, I, 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 I suppose something um, I observed, I, um, in, before I returned to education, I, I, was, I was working in London in the NGO charity sector and we did an enormous number of, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of recruitment interviews. And what was interesting, and again, as, as you were saying, to be careful not to, to um, overgeneralise, but, the, the, but, but definitely I feel having run a lot of interviews over the years, there was quite an interesting, what might be described as some male and female characteristics in the interview process. So what we, what we tended to find was that a lot of the women that were applying for jobs, when they arrived, they, they would have looked at the 10 key job characteristics and in the interview, they would say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, I really ought to tell you that I don't have much experience of, of, the, of the ninth and tenth one of these. Um, and they would focus on that. Whereas quite often with some of the men, and again, it's dangerous generalisations, they would sort of said, well, I had a friend who did one of these characteristics. I, I once chatted in a pub, very interestingly, and there was an extraordinary inbuilt confidence that, that, that it would be great if both genders shared. I mean, it might be yeah. too far in one way, but it was an extraordinary quite a clear observation yes. from hundreds of interviews that the, the women tended to be more self-deprecating, yes. whereas the men would certainly exaggerate the positives. And this is a confidence thing, right? And it comes back to that structure, in my opinion, the structure that I set out around rank, which is that women are immediately in a lower rank position than a man, just from that societal side. Obviously, there are other things that can be done to, to develop that. Um, and so they will, uh, they, women tend to um, apologize or want to be perfect at something before they'll put themselves forward. I've got examples at the school gates where mums have come up to me and said, oh, I'm thinking, well, there's one particular story. I'm thinking about going back to work. You know, can I have a chat with you about it? I said, yeah, great. What, what did, what, 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 who are you? What do you do? And said, I'm a lawyer. I said, oh, that's great. How long you haven't worked for? Eight years, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I'm thinking about going back as a paralegal. I went, why? Why? Does your license expire or something if you haven't practiced for a bit? And she said, no, 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 no. It's just that I haven't done it for eight years. And so, you know, uh, and I said, have you become more stupid? Have you, have you become less, you know, why, why is it that you think? I said, men at that point, if it was a man, would have gone, Eight years, right. By now, I would have been senior partner. So I'll apply for senior partner jobs because that's appropriate. Now, I'm wildly generalizing. It's just I see it. I see mm. it a lot. Mm. Um, I've got a team of 700 people and these dynamics get repeated again and again and again. And somebody asked about a promotion. That was part of the question that I didn't, didn't answer properly. It's exactly right. Men will push and I'm generalizing because there are lots of women that will also push. Um, but the, generally, 
men will push for their promotion before they're ready and women will um, ask for it way beyond when they were ready. Yeah, very, very interesting. Now, uh, now let's look at some of the other questions that are coming in. And I, I don't want to jump around, but but there's some I also feel we ought to to make sure we answer that, that we probably won't have time to do all of them. But um, now this 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 is a really interesting one. Um, so I, this sounds like this, we've, we've suddenly become sort of, um, you know, trying to help somebody with quite a big problem here. But what, what would you suggest is the best way to deal with someone who undermines your leadership? Yeah. So I think this is a great question because, of course, it happens all the time and it's, it's happened to me a number of times. I've got someone very annoying at the moment who's trying to do it. The first thing is take a really big, deep breath and um, try and look at the situation or look at the situation um, as objectively as possible and try and understand what it is that's motivating that individual to do it. Is it uh, sometimes an individual can be called a troublemaker, but they're actually speaking for a wider group. They just have the chutzpah to, to, to voice it or they have less to lose or it's, it's just they've taken that role. Um, and other people may be feeling what they're feeling, but they're expressing it and then they get labeled a troublemaker. But asking oneself, why is this happening? Because all it is is feedback. It's feedback to say that my leadership is not working for you. So going through the questions of, do they have the skills to do their job at the moment? Because often troublemakers undermining people are coming from a place of fear. So is it that they don't have the skills to do their job properly? So actually it's easier to cause trouble than to um, not cause trouble and get exposed to somebody who's not doing their job very well. Have the, the right structures been created around that individual? So have they got an outlet for their, to be able to express themselves? Have they got an outlet to be able to show their good work? Have they got an outlet to ask for the right support when they need it? And those as a leader are structures that I need to put into an organization to make sure that each individual has what they need to be able to do their job really well. If I can answer both of those things, looking in the mirror and go, they absolutely have the skills, they absolutely have the structures, then um, uh, you pretty much better ask them, <laughs> what is it that's going wrong? Because you've got the skills, you've got the structures, what don't you like? And if they can't say and they don't tell, the, there are times when we have to remove people from a situation. They might not be evil, horrible people, but they might just be in the wrong job. I never think that there's anything called a personality clash. I just think you're having bad conversations. But if you have a good, honest conversation about, I think you're fabulous. I think I'm fabulous. Why isn't this working? Then uh, nine times out of 10, no, that's a bit of optimistic, but Pollyanna, six times out of 10, it can be resolved. Four times out of 10, then maybe removing to a different part of the organization or even out of the organization never be frightened to remove something that is causing toxicity for others. Brilliant. I, I, and just that sort of makes me think about something that I've learned over the years or, or, or been introduced to is that 
when we sort of assess people in the workplace, we seem to, we have a bit of a cultural habit of looking for what's not going well rather than what's going well. Or we do it in a sort of, I can't remember now, it was a praise sandwich or whatever it was. And you, if you're going to deliver bad news, you, you do a bit of good news, bad news, good news. But actually, there's been a much more interesting approach in the last sort of 20 years, which is about strengths audits. So just keying into that person who perhaps might not just for all the, you know, lots of sensible reasons just might not be there. But I don't know if if um, you spend much time looking at people's strengths and saying, well, unless unless they are a pilot and it turns out they're not very good at flying planes, <laughs> let's look at the positives. I mean, is that something you've you've looked at in in with working with yeah. your Yeah, definitely. And there is actually a uh, there's a business around um, strength audit. So you know, you can buy an off the shelf product, answer lots of questions, and it pops out your seven strengths. And you can look at an organization and go, have we got enough strength and depth in the areas that we need to? Because um, often organizations and teams can really hire the same strengths again and again. And so you end up with gaps in some other areas. Um, so absolutely, I think it's a terrific idea. And to be able to um, I used the word superpower earlier, and, and that's part of this actual program. You get seven strengths out of whatever, 30, and you have three that are your superpowers. Um, and, you know, to be able to feel good and know that you can always draw on those things because it's something you find easy and you're really good at. It's very comforting to be able to draw on those things and use them. And it's, and it's great to see that more and more adopted, isn't it, uh, in, across all the sectors. So now jump, jumping back, just thinking of our, our younger members of the audience, either those who are, who are about to leave Wellington uh, and they may be having a gap year, they'll certainly be working during that gap year or they'll be going to university. Or, and, and then we've also, we know we've got, we've got some um, young OWs who are about to graduate from university. So maybe for, for, for them, we've given them that really helpful kind of context of the workplace and things to look out for. But thinking specifically about them, what, what bits of advice would you give our, our young, soon to be going to the workplace OWs? Okay, great. So if I was to list maybe three or four things that have served me and I see serving other young people, um, whatever job you're doing, whether you're working in a pub, working in Sainsbury's, working in a magistrate's court, whatever it is, absolutely do the best job that you possibly can because somebody will notice and somebody will uh, spot it and want to um, get more of that <laughs> in whatever form that takes. Um, it also builds your own self-esteem and it also builds your muscle of, uh, which I think everybody at Wellington actually, you know, I think Wellington does this brilliantly about helping young people um, achieve more and more and build their self-esteem in that way. Um, but I do think that just do the best job that you possibly can. It doesn't matter what it is and somebody will notice. And if nobody notices, you notice and that feels good. The second thing that I would say is, and it's a question really for individuals when they're making a decision about what they want to do. And it's something that someone said to me only a few years ago, actually, and I really like it. And when you're thinking about your career and the sort of things that you might select, whether it's law, medicine, media, journalism, whatever it is, the question to answer is, who do you want to help? Now, the answer for me for about 20 years was myself. And I think that that's completely fine. I wanted to establish myself. I wanted to buy a property. I wanted to be able to uh, have financial security, blah, blah, blah. 
So it's really fine if the answer is yourself. It definitely changes over time because for the first 20 years, that's what it was. It's changed massively over time. And my journey has been, I wanted to help others around me. So the people that I worked with, and I've now graduated to, I want to help people I don't know. So I'm not saying one's better than the other and one's not a natural journey. It could be the other way around that you start wanting to help other people that you don't know and that actually you end up needing or wanting to help yourself. But it's a really good question uh, to ask. I find it a very thoughtful question to ask yourself because it could lead you into either a caring profession or a research profession or um, uh, a legal profession because you want to fight injustice or whatever. But who do I want to help? Do I want to help the innocent? Do I want to help the guilty? Whatever it is, it's a great question, I think, to ask yourself, and it helps then funnel and channel some of your ideas about what you could, what what, what career you could move into. Um, and then the, I probably could go on for hours on this, so I won't, but my next two things sort of go hand in hand and they wildly um, contradict each other. So forgive me, but the first is, just say yes to everything. So when you're in a working environment, if somebody says, could you do this? Could you do that? And you're at a more junior level, the answer is yes. What's the question? Now, I will contradict myself to say it's really important that you have boundaries as well, because whatever you say yes to, everyone will think you'll always do that. So there are obvious things to have boundaries to about appropriateness and all of that stuff, which you won't need me to tell you. But also, um, if your job title is something manager and you've got somebody who's trying to abuse that and ask you to do something that is wildly off kilter, then just have a boundary. Um, uh, you know, why would you like me to do that? Yes, I can do it for you this time. That's not something I would normally do. You know, whatever, whatever boundary you decide to put up. But it's yes to everything, but no to some things. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's incredibly helpful. I, 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 I think that is a extremely good advice for for young people going to the workplace where as you say there's going to be you know I think our, our graduates want to impress want to do things want to say yes but I think it's you're absolutely right to make that point that of the boundaries so 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 in terms of just flipping this now in terms of so advice that was advice to to, to, to young graduates um, in terms of the attributes that you look for in graduates, what are you looking for, Natasha, with these recruits? And they should message you afterwards and see if they can get some work experience. Definitely. And in yeah. fact, there's somebody on here who I won't say unless you want to be said, who's actually working at our organisation at the moment. And the reason she is, is that she talked to me in a social occasion about the sort of stuff that she'd been up to. And a year later, I was looking for somebody who could do those things. Um, so yak, yak, yak about what you're doing to anyone who will care to listen, because you never know when that will come up. Um, what was your question, Murray? Yeah, Sorry. So the question was, what are you looking for? So um, oh, yes, what am I looking for? Yeah. Okay, so the first thing that I completely and utterly love and just think is fantastic is curiosity. So somebody who is uh, not just willing to learn, but desperate to learn and hungry um, and excited to learn and excited to, um, to recognize what they don't know. I think it goes back slightly to what you were saying earlier, Murray. Um, that is probably the main attribute that I look for uh, because, you know, skills can be taught. This is all cliches. Skills get taught. Um, attributes, personality, work ethic, 
uh, is there. It's there. I mean, people can get better at those things, definitely, because if you're a good learner and you watch around you, okay, work ethic seems to matter. I'll put a bit more energy and focus into that. Uh, but curiosity, wanting to learn, hungry. Um, ones who, and, and, you know, maybe this is gender specific. I don't know. But I'm slightly worried about the language I'm about to use, so I'm going to adjust it. Don't be a wally. Okay, there are other words that you could exchange for Wally, but just don't be an idiot in an organization. Don't be horrid. <laughs> just don't make people feel bad. Um, don't show off uh, unless you're doing it in a lovely, amusing, you know, way. Uh, it's, they're not attractive qualities and they're not designed to make people feel good. So don't be a Wally. Um, what else do I look for? Clearly, very specific skills, depending on the role that they're after, whether I need them to be numerate, whether I need them to be uh, able to speak in public, whether they can write beautifully, you know, all of that sort of good stuff is a, is a given. Um, and those who, who have some good self-awareness. Um, I don't need a room full of extroverts. I mean, just imagine how irritating it would be if everyone was like me and Murray. <laughs> We'd have a lot of fun. Well, it would be slightly <laughs> exhausting for everyone. Uh, but um, people who know themselves well and um, know how to contribute and, and uh, well, you know, just people who have self-awareness because then you can have great conversations. When people don't have self-awareness, it's very difficult to have good conversations with them. Very, very difficult because people become defensive and they become, they feel like they're being attacked. And, you know, it's about, I've got strengths and I've got areas which are not my preferences. Doesn't mean I'm awful. Just means I prefer to use these other things than those things. Uh, and that's completely fine. So I think self-awareness I look for as well. And I, and I, you know, I, I think that has in many ways, I mean, a, a theme throughout throughout the discussion tonight is about that self-awareness, no matter what stage, you know, um, really understanding your strengths and the weaknesses and not and not being overly critical of oneself. It's just yeah. saying I have a preference to be quieter in meetings or I have a preference to ask lots of questions. So I might need to. It's about awareness. We, we once did a. <laughs> The senior management thing, not here at a, a former life, and we did a whole thing on Myers Briggs, and and where you you know you learn your your preferences, and you think, well, I must be aware of that. I do come across as this, and one of my colleagues went, told you so. Everybody needs to treat me like this, this, and this. And we said, no, no, this is about being aware of your foibles <laughs> and and being open to change. Not that's it. I'm this yeah, closed. Like <laughs> Um, so, so, uh, so self-awareness is key and, and I'm sure if, uh, if I got the Jahari window right, I'm sure that that's one way of doing it. Um, there's something else that um, somebody once said to me and, and it's sort of only helpful as long as you don't actually, you know, really delve into this. But somebody basically said, when it comes to people in the workplace, all I want is radiators and I don't want any drains. Yes, I love that. It's so true. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, if you leave the room feeling more energised uh, rather than less energised, and that doesn't mean you have to be a Duracell bunny, it just means yeah. you're feeling good and, you know, wanting yeah. to get on to the next thing, um, then absolutely, I 100% agree. It I just goes back. another bit of advice. Do you mind if I share no, it? No, please. Um, and uh, it's about who you choose to spend time with. Um, so I, I did a talk at Benenden, um just before lockdown, however long ago, 18 months ago, 
And I obviously they were all young women. Um, I know we've got a mixed uh, audience today. Um, but I said to them, and I believe this for, for all genders, pick your partner really carefully and really well um, and choose somebody who shares um, the same ambitions for you as you have for yourself. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be as ambitious and that you have to match. It's just don't choose somebody who wants you to be different to what you want to be. Um, and because it's draining and you will feel compromised and it's difficult. So choose somebody who shares the same, the same for you as you have for yourself. And uh, that really helps in a professional environment. Brilliant advice. Now, it, it, I know we're running out of time and I, and I, and I actually, I, it, again, we, we're perhaps maybe segueing into something but but quite specific but I do think again for just thinking of our young people thinking of the system they've come out with the, the, the fact that things are changing um how do you think the UK's education system will need to change to create a globally competitive workforce yeah so look just being very in a very specific area I know where we struggle in the UK uh, and in the US to find um enough people who are fabulous coders, developers, and data scientists. Now, if you are one of those, you can name your price. So, you know, these individuals get more money than, I don't know, whoever, the Queen, Prince Charles. They, uh, they can name their price because there's not enough of them. So organizations like ours, um, we now out offshore. So we've got teams in Czech Republic, in Bulgaria, in Malaysia, of developers um, and data scientists, because those countries um, through their education system, particularly university, tertiary education, have encouraged those skills um, and um, promoted those skills and those courses. So you can get really high qualified people, not as expensive as in the UK and in the US. Um, it brings its own problems, as you can imagine, because you're in different territories and you don't see each other very often. Our preference would be to have more local teams. Um, but right now, that's not really an option in most Western, most Western countries. Mm -hmm. So from an education, just on a very targeted level, I would love it if if schools and perhaps the individuals would love it too because there's loads of dosh to be made uh, and it's interesting work yeah. well as I, I should um plug the 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 old firm that i work for so i mean certainly under james's leadership and, and um with our, our governing body we're definitely looking at what is next in terms of of, of a kind of um, fit for purpose curriculum and and uh, going forward so watch this space is all i can say <laughs>